not that the Dukakis knocked the church off the track. Remember back, Mr. Armstrong, several years before his death, began saying, once he got back to Pasadena and wasn't traveling as much, the church is off the track. He could clearly see the church was not producing what it should be producing. I have seen trains off the track, and they don't go very far once they come off that track. They usually pile up in a big ball just right beside the track, and they don't make much more forward progress. Now, that's an analogy, of course, that he was using, and I think it is an apt one because the church hasn't gone very far since it's been off the track. He tried desperately to get it back on. He told us at times, I don't think half of you are getting it. And I heard him say at times, I don't think 10% of you are getting it. And I thought, well, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Who, Who is he talking about? And I wasn't. None of us were getting it. I would say not just 50% or 10%, but 100% of us weren't getting it. He was being kind to us. I don't believe any of us were really getting what God had in mind for us to understand and to know. Now, yes, we were in God's church, and we understood it was God's church, and we understood his basic truths, but we were not growing and becoming what God wanted us to become. If we had been producing the kind of grace he wanted for his vintage, then he wouldn't have torn the hedge away from the church, and he wouldn't have destroyed it as he has. So how much of it did he preserve? 50% of it? No, it's getting down to the point there's hardly 10% of it left. But he does say out of this there's going to be a righteous 10% that he will draw together. So we understand that, but I, I think we have to understand that we were not producing what God wanted us to produce. So to go back to just what we were doing there is simply not enough. We had to do something different. Now, I want to go back to Ezekiel 17. I did go through this in a sermon, I guess, several years ago. It probably was in the Minor Prophet series. I don't remember for sure at what point I went through this one, but it does have to do with the church, I think specifically, and it does mention the vineyard and the vine as well in here, and therefore it ties in with what I have to say, and it gives another uh, proof that the church is not what God wanted it to be. So even though some of you have heard this, a lot of you probably have not, and uh, I uh, please forgive me if you have heard it and understood it all, or maybe you've forgotten part of it. Who knows? Uh, it doesn't hurt to go over God's scriptures again. And I perhaps understand it a little better now than I did even then, for that matter. But let's go through Ezekiel 17. I don't think that this chapter could have been understood until what happened to the church. There are a lot of scriptures that couldn't really be understood until we saw what happened to the church. The word of the Lord, eternal came to me saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. Israel is a code word for the church, as we know, and it's been over many, many times. So this is not just a riddle. No kid will come up to you and give you a riddle. You have to try to figure it out. It's generally hard to do. And it, it is a riddle, but it's also a parable. And Christ spoke in parables to confuse the meaning so that they 
and comparing the church to it, all of a sudden it took on a new life. Well, here's what Ezekiel was told to say. And say, thus says the eternal God, a great eagle with great wings, and if you have not heard this explanation before, bear with me as we go through it. Uh, I will make some comparisons here and see if they don't all fit by the time we're through. A great eagle with great wings. So here is an eagle, a big bird, with great wide wings. So the influence of this eagle covers a lot of ground, in other words. It's a wide wing spread. Long wings, the great wings and then long wings, full of feathers. So a lot of people, to use that this analogy of, of the church, a lot of people in it, which had different colors, so it was worldwide, had all different races of men in it, uh, many colors. I don't normally think of a an eagle with having a lot of different colors. You know, they might have a white head and, and brown feathers on their bodies, depending on the type of eagle you're talking about, be it an American eagle, a golden eagle, or an African eagle, or whatever. But it does mention different colors here. And if you look at an eagle carefully, there are different colors in the wings and so on, even though they appear basically brown. Came to Lebanon, took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, the cedar is mentioned in Revelation, I'm in Revelation, in Zechariah 11 is one of the big trees there, you know, where the, the prophets, I mean, the ministers are cut off and the trees are cut down. And it's interesting that somebody had planted cedars of Lebanon on the Pasadena campus. There were several there. And any time Mr. Armstrong took a tour around the campus, that was one of the things that he unfailingly pointed out was the cedars of Lebanon. Those captured his imagination because of the many references to the cedars of Lebanon in the Bible, I'm sure, was the reason he he made that reference. But he always pointed it out. A cedar can be a church or a temple. And my view on this is that the great eagle here was Herbert Armstrong and the work that he was did under God uh, went around the world. It included many different races and as far as a little flock is concerned, God always constantly says his church would be a little flock, uh, and compared to the Baptists or the Catholics or some of the big organizations, it was still small. But in terms of God's church through the ages, I would say that it was pretty large, all those that were called. I doubt that the early New Testament church ever achieved 140, 150,000 people. There were 3,000 and 5,000 conversions right at the beginning there in Acts 2, but there was nothing to indicate that that type of growth continued. In other words, Paul said they were still meeting in homes. Uh, we can meet in a home here because there's 30, 40, 50 of us, but if we had thousands, this just simply wouldn't work. How many college students can get in the Volkswagen? I guess we could try that, but... Uh, not normally speaking, and then there was a great apostasy, and they began to fall away instead of come in. So I doubt that it reached the proportions even that this did. So if Herbert Armstrong was this first eagle, uh, he was taken from the highest branch of the cedar. That was the best church there was. Uh, he was in Oregon to begin with. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. So even though it began in Oregon, it was 
cropped off and taken to a land of traffic. L.A. is one of the biggest port cities on Earth, land of much business and traffic going through there. And if you want to take traffic uh, in particular, <laughs> get on an L.A. freeway and see if it's not a land of much traffic. This is referring to commerce, but of course that traffic there has to do with commerce as well, people going back and forth to work and producing and shipping goods and so on. And set it in a city of merchants, perfect description of Los Angeles. All right, he also took of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. Seed of the land would be the seed that it's produced, the people in the land, and planted it in a fruitful field. Uh, it grew, grew well. He placed it by great waters, good doctrine. So God gave good word and good doctrine to the church. And he set it as a willow tree. There's a song in our hymnal we sing, we hung our harps on the willow tree the land of Babylon, and we are in a Babylonian society today. So here we are with our hearts, and we're in Babylon, and uh, it mentions the willow tree. Word canat means willow, or whatever that's worth. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. So of course, he didn't have his headquarters here. It would be the obvious answer to that. But uh, the willow tree is mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. It grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. It was of no great fame uh, around the world. The Catholic Church has far greater fame. So does the Baptist Church. So does Billy Graham. Uh, it wasn't of any great fame. Uh, people did hear about it, but it didn't have great stature among the churches of the world or in the world itself. Whose branches turned toward him. Did we begin to put him on a pedestal and begin to follow him more than we followed God? I think for the most part we'd have to say yes. We gave God lip service, but Herbert Armstrong was the one. When he came, everybody applauded. Everybody stood up. Uh, it became to the point where he was almost, what you would say, a cult leader in that sense. He used those words, talking about God's church, but it came to that point. And the root thereof were under him. I mean, everything had to do with Herbert Armstrong. What happened when he disappeared? I mean, that's a matter of history we all understand. So we had turned to him. Our root was under him. He's the one that planted it. It's where we grew. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth bricks. Now, God's church is called a vineyard in many cases, and very clearly in John 15. Uh, but this was a cedar to start out with. It was to grow tall as a tree. But it came became a spreading vine instead, as Isaiah 5 points out. It brought, brought forth branches and shot forth bricks, so we had offices around the world. We had congregations in almost every city, anywhere, uh, in the United States, at least in Canada, and, and uh, through Europe, and many places around the world. So there were many branches and sprigs of the church. Now, it changes, verse 7. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And I propose to you that this is a type of Joseph the Cock. It's not an eaglet that came from the first eagle in that sense, but a different eagle. Uh, grew up somewhere else. Uh, had a different life altogether. There was another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. Doesn't mention the, the different colors in it. 
uh, it began to shrink pretty quickly, as we'll see. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him. Different eagle, and the vine began to turn its roots toward him. Herbert Armstrong died, and people began to turn to another leader. And shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. So we began to look to go to Koch for water, didn't we? And it did the, the, the plantation or the planting was already there. We were already there. But when Herbert Armstrong died, we began to look to Joseph Koch, who said he would follow in his footsteps, didn't he? And would honor everything that he had taught and believed. So we looked to him for water, a doctrine, for teaching. It was planted in a good soil by great waters. So the soil was still good. The doctrine was still there. It was still good. That it might bring forth branches and it might bear fruit. That it might be a goodly vine. So we had a chance here to become a goodly vine if we got the right water in the right direction and the right help. Here was a somewhat younger man than Herbert Armstrong who had he caught the vision that the church was off the track, and he listened to Mr. Armstrong, followed through on Mr. Armstrong's teachings and beliefs, and done what he should have done, we still had a chance to become a goodly vine, didn't we? But something happened. Let's see what this says. So it had good soil, great waters, that it might bring forth branches and be a goodly vine. Verse 9. Say you, thus says the eternal God, Shall it prosper? Is it going to become a goodly vine? Will it use this good planting and the good waters that it had to become a goodly vine? Shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? The question. Then he answers the question. It shall wither and all the leaves of her spring even without great power are many people to pluck it up by the root thereof. In other words, this thing is just going to wither. No one is going to get a big crew of people together and shirk it, destroy it, cut it down in that sense, but it would just wither. Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Stayed right there in Pasadena and withered right up. No, they didn't have to jerk it out of the ground. They didn't have to come in and say, we're disbanding, we're leaving, it's all over. And, and tear us out from the roots. It just simply withered right there where it was. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Know you not what these things mean? Do you, do you understand what this is? He says, say this to the rebellious house, to the church, that which those who have rebelled against God and his teaching and his ways. Do you know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem. Now you could say that this is just a historical book or historical chapter here, but when you see how well this fits, I don't believe it. Uh, the, the Babylon is gone. This is an end-time prophecy. Uh, the city of Babylon is not even there anymore, but the Babylonian system still exists, and it exists quite uh, prominently in America today. 
Maybe I need to do a sermon on that sometime. The king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem, which is a code word for the church, and has taken away the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. What did they start doing? They started sending the ministers, even back in the 70s. And this is what helped get it off track. The Fuller Seminary and other theological institutions of the Protestants around Pasadena. They tried to get me to go there. And I refused. And asked for a transfer and got out of there. Didn't want to be there anymore. So, Babylon, the system of Babylon and the Babylonian religions took over who? Yodokash. He became a screaming liberal Protestant. And he took the princes thereof as well. All those respected evangelists that we had. They also went that way, most of them. A few sort of stuck with the truth, and some of them are beginning to drift away from it even now. And led them with him to Babylon. They hung on to their paychecks and stayed with the Protestant teaching. It's amazing how well this all just fits right together. Every every little sentence and word here. And has taken of the king's seed, that's us, Herbert Armstrong here representing the king, he took of the seed that Herbert Armstrong had produced and made a covenant with him and has taken an oath of him. He has also taken the mighty of the land. That might be the evangelist there. Not just the lay members, but the ministry and especially the leading ministry went with him as well. So, go to God, made an oath to follow in Herbert Armstrong's footsteps. Didn't do it. Led them away. Verse 14, that the kingdom might be based that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt. Well, they sent the ministry again into all those Protestant seminaries to learn true doctrine. Uh-huh, sure. Said, so we'll grow. We'll do good. Once we go into sin, into Egypt, into Protestant, Babylonian, and Egyptian teaching, that they might give him horses and much people. What did he say? That you don't even need to tithe anymore, because I know that you have the love of God in your heart, and that you'll send even more than when you were required to tithe. And they didn't. And it's the only thing he changed back. He said, we're going to prosper, didn't he? We're going to do wonderful things. We'll go back to true Protestantism, true doctrine, and we'll just grow by leaps and bounds. That was the projection they made. Then he says, shall he prosper? Shall he escape that does such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? Broke the covenant that he had made with God when he was baptized, falsely or truly. He broke that covenant, and he broke the covenant he made with Mr. Armstrong to follow in his steps and keep the true doctrine. As I live, says the eternal God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king. So Herbert Armstrong dwelled there, and he made a Jodakot king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke. Even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. They both died in Los Angeles, right in the middle of Babylon. You don't get much more to the middle of Babylon than Los Angeles and Hollywood. That's where they both died. Now, this is not a 
condemnation of Herbert Armstrong here. This is a condemnation of Joseph Koch, who departed from that oath and didn't keep that covenant. But he said Herbert Armstrong died there, and this other guy's going to die there too. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mountains and building forts to cut off many persons. You know, did the Protestant world, Egypt, come to their aid? Just let them wither up and die. They approached the Protestants. I saw Joe Jr. one day on TTL Club or 700 Club, whatever it is. Uh, Marla was surfing through looking at channels, and there was Joe Jr. sitting there with, what's his name? I don't care what his name is. Uh, so, the Protestant world didn't save him, did it? Going to Egypt didn't help. Pharaoh couldn't help a bit. Verse 18, seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand, he shook hands on the deal and said, I will lead the people in the way that you have prescribed. Didn't do it. And he has done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, as I live by his very own eternal life, he swears, surely my oath that he has despised and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. Now this could be referring to Joe Jr. after uh, Sr. died, a few verses earlier in verse 16, because he followed in the same way as his father. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he has trespassed against me. Maybe this is still talking about senior. Because many people pleaded with him, even though he was in Babylon, and had taken the church there. Many people in God's church pleaded with Joe Sr. not to do this thing. Ministers went to him. Members went to him. I know some that did. Tried to convince him he was doing the wrong thing, but wouldn't hear it. And all his fugitives, verse 21, with all his sand shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. Well, haven't we seen the church fall by the sword on a spiritual level? Many, many people have died spiritually, and those that do remain have been scattered to the winds, and are still being scattered to the winds. It isn't over yet. And you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. And see, we couldn't understand this, didn't know this, until God began to scatter and to do the things that he said he would do. And then he says, when this happens, then you'll know that I have done this thing. I have said this. So worldwide will continue to wither until it is completely gone. It's getting there now, but just recently, as I heard, uh, said no more tolerance of Saturday keeping. It's Sunday now, forevermore or else. That may be the final blow, the last straw, because that completely cuts off the sign between God and his people. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not his people anymore. Now, what does God do next? And this ties in very well with what we've been learning in Haggai and Zechariah and various other scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 22. Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. So he turns and he's, he's taking a different direction now. He's taking a branch off the cedar, the cedar from the jet 
Bible said it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. See, we had a lot of abuse and misuse with the ministry and the church in the days of worldwide. It wasn't really Herbert Armstrong's way, but it got into the church, and the ministry became very, very oppressive and abusive and misused its authority. Uh, did not treat the people kindly and gently. And as a result, we have Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Malachi, and many, many other condemnations of what happened within the church because of the ministry. So in this case, he's going to bring a tender one, not an abusive one, not a mean one, but a tender one. And we'll plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. Now the church, the God, the latter temple that God is going to put together is going to be planted on a high place and it will be imminent in the sense that it can be seen. Christ told us to set our light on a hill that it can be seen, not to hide it in a cave somewhere, but to set it on a hill to be seen. And this ties in very well with that, that God is going to set it up as a witness. He's going to set it up as a light to the world. When he brings his remnant together, they will be prominent. They will be imminent. doesn't say they'll be big. I don't think the latter temple will come anywhere near the physical proportions of the former under the Armstrong. In other words, again, many call him chosen. But it will have to produce goodly fruit. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. Hmm, that's interesting. Is Jordan in Israel? Is Petra in Israel? No. wonder where it will be planted. Time will tell. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. This one, when it is established, will pale into insignificance that which came before from a spiritual viewpoint. Haggai says there is no comparison, really, from the old men who saw both. So it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. So God says it's going to do that which is right, that which is good, and it will bear good fruit. Not wild grapes, not sour grapes, but good fruit. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In other words, people from everywhere will come. Isn't that what Haggai says? The people will be stirred and come and build the latter temple. Fits perfectly with the story there in Haggai and Zechariah. And the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. It will be a covert. It will be a safe place. It will be uh, protected. That's what a tree does. It protects the, the birds that lodge in its branches. Very hard for an eagle to fly down through big branches on a cedar tree and get the little birdie that's sitting on a limb halfway into the tree somewhere. It's a protective thing. And all the trees of the field, all the churches, all those who have broken off, shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree. Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God became a high tree, I think, in the annals of church history, if you look at it that way. Have exalted the low tree, that which was in the mountain much, wasn't anything, that dried up the green tree, and it made the dry tree to flourish. So God caused a withering. When the leadership changed and it was wrong, it began to wither. And it's basically now almost disappeared. 
God is going to take the dry tree, the little, you know, so that, that didn't amount to much and cause it to grow and to flourish. So God is going to get, gather a remnant of his people who are faithful, who don't amount to anything, who aren't wise and noble and great and mighty, but weak and base and small, nothing basically, just dry, and make it flourish. So God is going to give us tender, kind, gentle leadership, planets on a high and imminent place, and cause us to bring forth good prayer. And you and I have the opportunity to be a part of that if we respond to God in the way that we should and begin to put there good grace, produce good fruit. And this is going to appear, I think, before very long. I couldn't have understood this a few years ago. I mean, the history wasn't there. You couldn't see what had happened. But now you make a comparison, and it just fits bing, 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 right down the line. Now, it may have another meaning in terms of the physical nation of Israel before it's all done. I don't know. But boy, does it ever fit the church today. And we know that this Bible was written essentially to the church, to God's people, not to the world. They won't hear these words for the most part until the millennium and great white stone judgment. They will be used as a witness against them before that comes, but but they're not going to understand the truth in the way that we do. Let's go on down into chapter 18. I think it's important to follow this understanding in chapter 17 up with what God has to say thereafter. Before we get into that, though, flip back for a moment to Ezekiel 16. I think this is one that we all are very familiar with. And I'm not going to go through it all, but it's talking here about uh, Israel and the church today departing from God and going whoring after other things, materiality, other religions, lust, uh, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, or in whatever form it might take place in your life and mine. We were pursuing things other than God, and it upset God. He uses the example here of the church as the mother and the daughters, how the daughters went out and did the wrong things. So the daughters today of the church are not accomplishing what God wants them to accomplish. They're still pursuing wrong pursuits instead of seeking God with all their heart, mind, body, soul, and being. That's the problem in the churches today, including this one. It affects all of us. We've understood that to and to have to do with our spiritual condition. Then you get to the parable of the riddle, and he explains about the church, okay? Then we go to 18, and here he gives us some personal responsibility in all this. It isn't something that can be done without people taking personal responsibility. How do you put together a temple? a church, a cedar, a vine, all the analogies. How do you put that together if you don't have proper stones or proper branches or, you know, whichever analogy you're using? Those stones, that we'll use that analogy for now, uh, have to fit together. They have to be smooth. They have to have the rough, rough edges knocked off, the sins knocked off. They have to be prepared so that a temple can be built. And... He will get the personal responsibility here. The word of the eternal came to me again, saying, What 
sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Have you ever eaten a lemon or, or grapes that put your teeth on edge and you kind of a feeling? And isn't that the way we've been in the church the last few years? Our teeth are kind of on edge and things are not quite as comfortable as they ought to be. We've been in confusion and frustration and, and all kinds of problems. So uh, the church produced some sour grapes. Our fathers in the church ate them, and our teeth have been set on edge as a result of the sour grapes that our fathers, evangelists, leaders, ministers ate. Uh, another example would be hirelings hung onto their paycheck just to uh, and taught anything in order to hang on to the paycheck. Growth issues with government. Our teeth have been on edge ever since. As I live, verse 3, says the eternal God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. This is the last time. When God sets this cedar up and takes this tender twig and, and sets it on an eminent place on a high hill in Israel, we're never going to go back to the kind of situation we have in the church today. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. So he's bringing us all right down to you and me. The individual soul that sins, it shall die. We have a choice to make now. Are we going to produce good fruit, good grace? or wild grapes and sour grapes again. It's up to us, God's saying. It's up to us as individuals. You can't depend on Herbert Armstrong. You can't depend on Joe Cox. You can't depend on Rod Meredith. You can't depend on Jerry Fleury. You can't depend on Daryl Henson. You can't depend on anybody. The soul that sins, it shall die. I am trying to turn your roots to God, not to me. I don't want you following me, except and unless I follow God. We need to understand the governmental structure that we had under Herbert Armstrong was wrong in one sense. Now, yes, government comes from the top down. I think that is very clearly spelled out in the Bible, through the Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the ministry was set up. It's very obvious there were different offices and ranks in the ministry in the New Testament. People say that was not uh, just simply ignoring a lot of scriptures. But what happened there, if you were going to make an organizational chart, is that somehow the mother, the church, got between God and the people. See, our roots turned to Herbert Armstrong, and then the roots began to turn to Joe Koch. They didn't turn to the Father in heaven. That was the problem. You're going to have an organizational chart. It isn't a strict hierarchy like, uh, let's say, the Catholic Church. But you have the Father up here at the pinnacle at the top and the Son. And then the Mother, the Church, is off to the side, below and off to the side. When that veil of the temple was rent in twain, the Mother could not come in between you and God. Remember, in ancient Israel, it was more that way. You had the Holy of Holies, which the high priest could only go in once a year. And the people could not approach God. But when Christ died, he opened the way for us to approach the Father directly. And the ministry in an organizational chart is not between you and the Father. That is not the way the 
structure, uh, hierarchy brings into mind whatever it brings into your mind. It really means structure or government or uh, a way of doing things so that they're done properly. But it is not a strict hierarchy in the sense of the Father, the Son, then the church and ministry, and finally down to you and me. That was changed when Christ died. The veil of the temple was rent right down the middle. And that gave you and I always, at any time, direct access to the Father in heaven. So that means that the organizational chart had to change. The church, represented by ancient Israel in the past, had to be moved over to the side. Now the church is there to point you directly to the Father in heaven. And if you need help in accessing the Father in heaven, the church is there representing the mother to point to the Father. Your roots don't turn to the mother, to the church. The mother is there to help you in your relationship with the Father. And it was done wrongly and worldwide. The church got in between and caused our roots to turn to Herbert Armstrong and to the church and to the organization. And that was a big goof up. Right here, God says, it's your responsibility directly between you and him. The soul that sins against his law shall die. Not the one who sins against which car the minister told her to drive. You know, or how to arrange your cabinets or all the stuff that I've heard that the church got into where the ministry was cut over. No, we have personal responsibility directly to the Father. But if a man be just, verse 5, and do that which is lawful and right, and is not eaten upon the mountains, neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has come here to a menstruous woman, has not oppressed any, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has spoiled none by violence, has taken his bread to the hungry, and has covered the naked with a garment. Uh, these are things, some of them in the Old Testament, which he had to use reference to in terms of the law. But all the principles of the New Testament and the law and the spiritual principles that are there also were included here in principle. In other words, all of God's instruction. Deuteronomy says we must live by every word of God, just like Matthew 4, 4, and Luke 4, 4, 6. So the New Testament wasn't even written yet. So he couldn't include it in the instruction here, but obviously as a prophecy, it now has to include that instruction as well. Every word of God. He just uses some examples of the things that are wrong. No, we haven't eaten upon the mountains in terms of idols, but we have our own idols today, not little things that we carve out of wood or metal, but we have other idols. Probably got a pocket full of them, dollar bills, uh, all kinds of things in this world that get between us and God. We are our own worst idol because we put ourselves ahead of God so often. That's idolatry. Verse 8, He that has not given forth upon usury, neither has taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand in iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man. So fairness, equity, love, that's, that's all he's describing here. Pleasing God by the things we're doing, not doing things that hurt other people, or that hurt our relationship with God. Has walked in my statutes and has kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just, he shall surely live, says the eternal God. 
what we were and worldwide today, our relationship with God is what counts. Whether we're living by his instructions. Verse 10, if he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that does the like to any one of these things, and that does not any of those duties, that even has eaten upon the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife, and so on. Uh, I won't read all that, but verse 13, has given forth upon usury, has taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He that has done all these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. God is saying that we are not responsible for our son in that sense. If we obey God, we will live. If we disobey, we will die. If our son obeys, he will live. Or if he disobeys, he will die. Very clear. Now, Lord, if he beget a son that sees all his father's sins, which he has done and considers and does not such like, and he repeats all these things again. Uh, let's see. In the verse 17, he says, He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. So what I do does not determine my son's salvation whatsoever. What they do determines it. And if I sin and die, and they obey, they're going to live. Verse 18, as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet you say, why does not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son has done that which is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes, and has done them, he shall surely live. And he repeats again, the soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. We're not going to get in there on Herbert Armstrong's coattails. He's our father in the faith, as Paul was, not as a father like the Catholics, but we understand the family relationship. We don't live or die based on what Herbert Armstrong did. We thought that if we just followed him, we'd get in regardless, didn't we? Doesn't happen that way. Now we're out here on our own, aren't we? of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he surely shall live, he shall not die. And this takes it to another dimension. That you as an individual have responsibility, not your father to the son or the son to the father. We have a responsibility to God but even if we have done these things which are wrong, if we repent, we will not die. There is this own responsibility still has a way out. And even though I sinned at the Herbert Armstrong, though I was not what I should have been, and though I became Laodicea and I thought I was fine, but uh, Herbert Armstrong would call and I would be saved. <laughs> Just because I was warming a few or the fuse of the vernacular sitting in my own pew, but I didn't realize it at the time.
you are qualified to be resurrected, your sins will never be mentioned to you. The Protestants would have us believe that every one of us is going to have to sit before the judgment seat. No, judgment is now on the house of spiritual history. Our judgment is right now. We have to answer for our sins today. This isn't something that's off in the future for you and me. This is this is a now thing for you and me.
Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the eternal God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live you. So after he tells us what happened to the church in chapter 17, he goes through and tells us now it is your individual responsibility to wake up, to turn around, to create a new heart in you, to turn from your iniquity and live. That is his desire for us, his hope for us, his purpose for us, not to die. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but in the life of the righteous. That's what pleases him. Moreover, take you up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, chapter 19, verse 1, for the leaders, the pastors, the shepherds, and say, What is your mother? Our mother was worldwide church of God. What is your mother? A lioness. She lay down among lions. She nourished her wealth among young lions. A lion is a majestic animal. A lion lives in a pride. Uh, people group together. I've seen lions in Kruger Park in Africa, and generally speaking, you'll see two or three or four uh, lionesses, and they'll have all the cubs from all the lionesses with them, and they'll lie down together. I've seen them just group right up, just as close together as they can get. Car drove up, and they were all kind of laying stretched out on the ground, and they all got together and put their heads right together, one one, one after the other. They stick close to one another. She nourished her wealth, her cubs, among young lions. She brought up one of her wealth that became a young lion, had learned to catch the prey, and devoured men. I wonder if this continuation of thought here is not the church, or Herbert Armstrong is the lioness, and she tried to teach her wealth, her cubs, and one of them learned to tower, to tear, and devour men. And he came to be in charge. The people also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. But he became chained to Protestantism, didn't he? Now when she saw that she had waited and her hope was lost, isn't that the way we began to feel? Lost? Confused? Frustrated? And she took another of her wealth and made him a young lion, and he went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devoured men. Maybe that's Coke Jr. That's got another one. Just as bad. And he knew their desolate palaces, and he laid waste their cities. And the land was desolate, the fullness thereof, by the noise of his roaring. So we had desolate congregations, desolate palaces. See how the analogy fits. They didn't use modern terminology, but the analogy is there. Then the people set against him on every side from the provinces and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit. Uh, maybe the analogy there would go that we wouldn't put up with that. You know, that we, we threw the net of truth at him and over him, and he couldn't handle that. And they put him in ward and chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. So there he was, chained to the Protestant system. They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. And I don't think it's very long until you're not going to hear any more out of Worldwide Church of God. They've torn and devoured and now have been chained to Protestantism. And their demise is going to be in Protestantism. 
and the income stops, they no longer have the Sabbath which is assigned between God and his people, and that voice from Worldwide Church of God, which has been on the air since 1934, is going to be finally, fully, and completely silenced. No more will that voice be heard. Your mother is like a vine in your blood, planted by the water. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. Sounds just like chapter 17, doesn't it? She had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches. So it was a thick vine, thick vine, uh, threw upon the rods, the, the holders, like you do in a grape arbor. And she appeared in her height with a multitude of her branches. I mean, you wouldn't have really thought, would you? I wouldn't know. This worldwide would just sort of disappear. I mean, here was a thick vine with many branches that had had a real strong arbor, it seemed, and it seemed like it was here for good. And we had the fine buildings and the campuses and everything was there. You'd have thought this, this thing's here for good. This is a good vine. But God didn't like the taste of the grapes. Verse 12, but she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. Boy, didn't that happen. Now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And fire has gone out of the rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to be a separate to rule, no leadership. This is a lamentation, and shall be for a lamentation. Do we want to recreate worldwide, brethren? Is that good enough? I don't think so. Maybe these prophecies apply to physical Israel as well, but I don't think we can miss the application to spiritual Israel in the church. I mean, it just fits like a hand in a glove. There's no, there's no denying it in that sense. People say, well, it just applies to physical Israel. Well, fine, I'm a physical Israelite. It applies to me anyway. And I, I think the application is certainly there to spiritual Israel, which is the most important to God at the moment. Spiritual Israel or physical Israel. He'll deal with physical Israel in the millennium of great white stone His main concern right now is the bride of Christ. His main concern is the church. We have our only chance of salvation now. He is very involved with you and me. He is not involved with them. Paul made it very clear in Romans 11 that he was concluded to the unbelief until later on. Paul told, I mean, Christ told the Pharisees and the Sadducees on the last great day, I'll see you then. I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically what he was saying on that, in that sermon on the last great day. I'm not concerned with you now. I'll take care of you later. He's concerned with the church today, the first fruits, you and me. So I, I firmly believe that these scriptures have an application to us. That isn't a lamentation in the land. People out in the world ask me, well, what church? I was went to talk about a, a bank account with a local bank here yesterday, and the guy said, well, what do you call your church? Oh, man. Do I go back through the whole history and say, well, we're a, an offshoot of the Worldwide Church of God was withered up and dried and God burned it up, and uh, we're, we're sort of a little, <laughs> a little piece that got thrown out of the fire? You know, what, what do you say? I just said we call ourselves 
congregation of God. I just left it at that. Let him think what he wants. Maybe it's not quite as bad as Jehovah's Witness in his mind. <laughs> but it, it's a lamentation in the land. How do you explain to people? Well, it was this church that grew like a great eagle. Read Ezekiel 17 to them. Let's see if they can understand. <laughs> no, it's, it's a lamentation. Let's go to Proverbs 24. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I would you were cold or 
are hot. So then because you're lukewarm, it's kind of sleepy, laying in bed warm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now you can lay in that bed and sort of be warm. Now you got a choice. You can either be cold and say, I don't want to pray, I'm going to pray, I care less about praying, I'm going to think about my relationship with God. Or you can get out of that warm bed and get up and be hot for spiritual things. Or you can just lay there. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and that was exactly how we came to view ourselves in Worldwide Church of God. We had everything we needed, but we didn't produce the kind of proof God wanted. And know not, if you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, he tells us to counsel of him to take counsel, or he counsels us, excuse me, to buy us them gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, white raiment, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eyes thou, that you may see. We just didn't see anymore. And we weren't as white and righteous as we thought we were. And God spewed us out, like Isaiah 5, carrying the vineyard down. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. And that's what he tells us in Ezekiel 18. That we're responsible for ourselves and that we had to individually better repent and turn to God with our whole heart and then we will be saved. So the message here is the same as the message back there. How can we miss it being for the church? I want to go to Joel now. Joel 1. And here I want uh, verse 7. my fine waste and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Bark all stripped off. Don't you feel like you've had your bark stripped off? Uh, this is what God has done to his vine. Lament like a virgin, dirted with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Engaged, ready to be married, she thought, and it's all stripped away. Didn't we think that we were engaged to marry Jesus Christ and he would come soon and everything would be fine and we'd be part of his bride? And we're just like a virgin that was stripped of a wedding clothes. We were wearing the wrong thing. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the eternal, the priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. Isn't the ministry pretty much in mourning? Their flocks having been taken away. It's like the bride stripped of her garments and her, her husband to be. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. Like the famine of Amos 8. Says it's not a famine of bread, but a famine of the word. Be you ashamed, O you husbandmen, Howl, O you vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up. It kind of ties in with Ezekiel 17 about the vine withering right there where it was. The big tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field, all the churches, all those that split off are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. There's not much joy in the church anymore. Lamentation. And it shall 
reading God's word to you. I'm telling you what God says our attitude should be, specifically at the ministry here, in this verse. But don't forget Ezekiel 18. That's a personal responsibility that's there as well. I don't like to have to talk about these things. On the other hand, I don't have like to be the way I am. And you don't like to be the way you are. Because there's still an awful lot of pride and vanity and arrogance and, and self-righteousness in us. And we simply have to get rid of it. And then God will bless us like we have never been blessed before. We've got to read this part. We've got to read about the blessings too. Well, God will reward us if we do what he's telling us to do here. And this little organization, if we take personal responsibility, is going to grow and flourish and be blessed if we do what God says. It's just that, it's that simple. It's the equation that he lays out. Now, I'm not saying that we'll be blessed above others. Anyone can do what I'm telling you to do today. Any group can do it. And God will bless them too. But most aren't even willing to hear it. Don't want to hear it. They want to hear smooth and easy things. And, you know, if we stay in this organization, we'll be fine. We'll go to safety. We'll go to the kingdom of God. We're doing the work. The work that is laid before us today is to become like Jesus Christ. The rest of the world basically is concluded in unbelief. And God's keen attention is on the apple of his eye, the bride of Christ, the 144,000, his church of which we can be a part if we do this. Well, I have a lot more here, but I think maybe that's just a good place to stop. We're near the end of the, the time anyway. But don't be discouraged by this. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to show you the way, the blessing, the way to the good graces of God to become a pleasant tree before him and to produce good fruit and have him say, well done. That's the goal and the purpose. It's not to trounce us down. It's for us to take the individual responsibility to repent and trounce ourselves.